do it, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, we'll be starting in verse 1. This is Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, our Lord, that as I read this passage, Lord, I am just humbled by the the truths. I'm humbled by by the humility of Christ, that he humbled himself, Lord, and not only did not hold on to uh, equality, Lord, with you, and to not hold on to uh, his rightful position, Lord, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Truly became human. God, I pray that as we walk through this passage this morning, Lord, that you would convict our hearts, Lord, where there's pride, that we would replace that pride with humility. That we would look at the example of Christ and be humbled, be in awe, be worshipful that we would praise you because of him. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Today we're going to be continuing our sermon series through Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which I said last week, I don't think I can, can overstate the importance of this passage. The theological implications of this passage are just astonishing, and the application is humbling. My goal last week was really just to introduce this passage, and that was it. It it was just to help us feel the weightiness of this passage by connecting it to the Old Testament, to the name of God. And I hope you felt that weight as we walked through the Old Testament, that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, which is the name of God, Yahweh. Listen, there is no higher exaltation than Jesus having the name that is above every name. And what's amazing about this passage is that 
it really starts in the same place it ends in a lot of ways, where, where Jesus is exalted, he's in an exalted position. In fact, this passage is poetically written, as I mentioned last week, that it's so poetically written, so beautifully constructed, constructed that most scholars believe that this was probably an early church hymn, a hymn that was written out and sung uh, before the letter to the Philippians was ever penned by Paul, that Paul was using this hymn as an example, Christ being that example. It starts with the glory of Christ in, in the heights of heaven, and it really ends with the glory of Christ in the heights of heaven. And, and it has the humiliation of Christ on the cross right in the middle. This passage goes from glory to humiliation to glory. And when you put it all together, it really is beautiful. It's, it's unbelievable. It's astonishing. It's indescribable. It's unthinkable. It's, it's incomprehensible. And, and I could keep going with synonyms, but I think you get the point. It, 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 listen, it's the core of Christianity. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. If you get this passage wrong, you get the Christian faith wrong. Today we are just going to be looking at the first half of this amazing passage, verses 5 through 8, which really covers the humility of Christ, humility of Jesus, from glory to the cross. Next week we'll look at the exaltation of Jesus from the cross to glory. But as for today, we're going to look at really the first part of this hymn, first part of this passage and and as we do that i want you to notice the the downward progression the, the downward step or spiral in this passage uh, in verses five through eight it starts in heaven and it ends in death from heaven we move to earth the incarnation and from the incarnation we move to the cross the death of christ we go from heaven to earth to the grave it's a downward spiral poetically constructed from glory to the depths of humility. From glory to the depths of lowliness. And all of this is written as an example to us. An example of humility. Verse 5 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is written this as an example. Jesus is our example. And listen, what an example. So there's three parts of the sermon this morning, three points. Jesus' humility in heaven, Jesus' humility on earth, and Jesus' humility in his death. So let's start in heaven. Jesus' humility in heaven. If you would look at verse 6, it says this, who, though he was in the form of God. And this is our starting point. It starts in the, the heights of heaven, in the heights of glory, equality with God. I mean, there is no higher starting point. There, there is no higher position. There is no higher glory from eternity past. Jesus was in the form of God. Now, there's a lot to the statement. In fact, this passage is somewhat of an intimidating passage to preach through uh, for a number of reasons. One reason, as I've been joking around all week this week, that, that uh, is that 
you're one step away from heresy in almost anything you say when you're preaching this passage. That's intimidating. Another reason is, is that it's just one of the most glorious truths, uh, these few verses that, that we see throughout all of Scripture. So, so how do you preach a sermon that gives, gives it justice? In fact, I would just encourage you to read verses 6 through 11 over and over and over again and pray to God that the Spirit would reveal the depths of the truths that are in this passage to your heart. But there's another reason why it's somewhat intimidating to preach this passage. There is just books, pages and pages of commentaries, books, articles written on this passage. In fact, written on this one phrase in the form of God. I mean, in fact, there there are just a lot of arguments surrounding the word form and what exactly that means. In Greek, it's morphe which means, or it has a range of meaning. It, it can just mean outward appearance, morphe, the form, outward appearance, form, form's a good translation, or shape, the shape of something. It, uh, but I think that's a shallow understanding of this word, especially in the context of this passage. John Calvin writes this, he says, the, the form or morphe of God means his, his majesty. For man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. Again, in its context, this word means more than just appearance or form. It's a form that agrees with a reality. It agrees with Jesus' character, his attributes, his divine nature. Therefore, I think a good definition of this word would be something like this. Morphe is, a, is the visible expression of the essential nature of something. In heaven, Jesus was in the form of God because his essential nature was God, divine. And this just agrees with the rest of scripture. Let me just give you a a couple places. Uh, John 1.1, it says this, in the beginning was the word, which is a shocking statement because Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning was God. The word here is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.1 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Therefore, when Paul says Jesus was in the form of God, according to the context of scripture, this means Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And it's not 
just a larger context of Scripture that teaches this. The near to- context gives meaning to the word morphe. If you again look at verse 6, it says this, though he was in the form, that's morphe, in, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the context clearly defines the phrase form of God. It means equality with God. These phrases are synonymous in this passage. Jesus was in the form of God, meaning he was equal with God. Truly divine. Again, this just agrees with the rest of Scripture. Jesus is God. Now, I don't love how the ESV translates verse 6 because the verb in verse 6 is not in the past tense. It's a present active participle. Therefore, I actually like how the legacy standard Bible translates verse 6. It says this, who, although existing in the form of God. The verb existing is a better translation, in my opinion. It has a continuous, ongoing aspect. Uh, It's a better translation, and it really fits perfectly with the doctrine of Jesus' divinity. Not only was he divine, but he is and will always be divine. Jesus didn't give up his divinity when he became man. So the Legacy Standard Bible, I think, gets it right. Although existing in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is where we see the first step towards the downward movement or downward spiral of our passage. We're still in heaven. This is before the incarnation. This is before the manger. This is before the virgin birth. There there is a a humility in Jesus' thinking. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, equality with God is exactly what it sounds like, equal with God. But listen, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Thing to be grasped means something like to, to be held on to or cling to. It's, it's not something that we would use in modern day language, a thing to be grasped, but it just means to be held on to. So it could be translated something like this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, or again, grasped. Or maybe better, a translation would be like this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his advantage. That kind of gets to the meaning of the verb. John MacArthur puts it this way. He had all the rights and privileges of God, which he could never lose, yet he refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God, nor view it as a prized possession to be used for himself. Now I want to show you something that I think is pretty interesting I just, again, when I go through a passage, I meditate on it, I I pray on the passage, and and there's something that kind of just hit me as I was studying this passage, and and I want to kind of walk you through uh, what I, I guess, discovered or saw in this passage that uh, really humbled me. If you would, just turn to a couple passages with me. Let's start in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It says this in verse 8. 
therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, listen to this, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, literally, that phrase means before times eternal. In other words, before heavens and the earth. This means that there is a plan and purpose of grace that was set forth before the ages began. And if you would, turn to Titus, just a couple pages over. Titus 1, verse 1. Titus 1, verse 1, it says this. Paul, a servant of God and of a, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Again, before creation, before the foundations of the the world, God made a promise. In other words, God had a plan. We see this consistently throughout Scripture. Turn to one last place, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. This is a passage we're familiar with, but I want you to see just how consistent Scripture is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He, he chose us before creation, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, here's my question. How, how do we become holy and blameless before him? Well, only in Jesus, right? Through his life, death, and resurrection, meaning from eternity past, before the foundations of the world, the incarnation, the death of Jesus was planned by God the Father before Adam and Eve sinned. In other words, it wasn't a reaction to Adam and Eve's sin. This was planned before creation. From eternity past, God planned to redeem a fallen humanity by sacrificing his son on the cross, meaning even in heaven, from eternity past, before times eternal, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But in humility, knowing redemption would cost him his life, he humbly agreed to the plan. Now just reflect on that for a second. Even in heaven, in all his glory, before times eternal, God the Son was humble. 
Listen to what Kent Hughes writes about this. He says this. Though Jesus, or through Jesus is exalted, or though Jesus exalted in the splendorous form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea is that he did not hold on to his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Here we need to look back at verses 3 and 4 to Christians who vie as rivals as they seek their own interest. Remember the context of this passage. With the unity of the church, Paul is saying uh, there's Christians causing division by, by seeking their own interests. And this is what Kent Hughes says. How unlike such people was the pre-incarnate Christ? Rather than viewing his equality with God as something to keep, he saw it as qualifying him for his humble descent to save his people. Christ's eternal humility in heaven is a thing of astonishing wonder. Now turn back to Philippians 2, verse 6. Verse 6 says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was humble even in heaven. Which brings us to our second point. Jesus' humility in the incarnation on earth. Verse 7 starts with the word, but. Now, this is an important word in this passage. The Greek word but in verse 7 is related to the, the Greek word not in verse 6. It's a particular Greek construction that has a, has a forcefulness behind it. It simply means this, not this, but this. That's what the construction means, not this, but this. In other words, th there's meant to be a contrast, not this, but this. And, and this contrast is meant to be forceful. I would say shocking or unbelievable. Jesus did not, this is what he didn't do. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now we're treading on holy ground here. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Listen, if we don't get this right, we don't get the Christian faith right. Again, he emptied himself. I mean, that's a weighty truth. When you reflect on who Jesus is, that's a, that's a weighty truth. Jesus, the, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power, emptied himself. Shocking statement. Because it's a shocking reality. But what does it mean? How did Jesus empty himself? Again, we have to be very, very careful here. 
and make sure we, we do not say something that the text doesn't say. So let's start with what the, the text doesn't say. Jesus didn't empty himself of his divinity. During the early part of the 20th century, liberal theologians abused this passage and the meaning of this text by claiming that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature, of his divine attributes, that, that he was only human when he came to earth. This was called the kenosis theory, which comes from the Greek word that's translated empty in verse 7. It, it's kenosis. It sounds like that word, but... Uh, this has been widely rejected for a number of reasons in scholarship, but, but mostly because it's clear throughout Scripture that Jesus is, that he was, and that he will always be divine. Therefore, Jesus didn't empty himself of his divine nature. In fact, that would be impossible. There's one thing that God can't do. And that is, stop being God. God can't stop being God. That, that's an impossibility. In fact, without getting too deep into the theology, redemption would be impossible if Jesus wasn't divine. His death would have never paid for the sins of the world if he was just a man. No man could just die for the sins of the world. It, it, it could only be the, the God-man. R.C.H. Linsky writes this, Even in the midst of his death, he had to be the mighty God in order by his death to conquer death. So Jesus didn't empty himself of his divine nature. But that begs the question, what did Jesus empty himself of then? Well, thankfully, Paul just tells us. Look at verse 7. But emptied himself by, this is how he emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, that's just clear. Jesus emptied himself by two things. Taking the form of, the, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Of men. Listen, he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He emptied himself by taking on humanity. It was subtraction by addition. Sometimes uh, you add something and that's actually subtract, subtraction. For God to add humanity on himself, that's subtraction. <laughs> Listen to verse 7. But he but emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What's being described in verse 7 is Jesus' incarnation, which is why this passage is so appropriate for this time of year as we get close to celebrating Christmas. Jesus was truly human. Jesus in his humanity fully identified with the human race. Jesus in his humanity fully participated in our human experience. Jesus was truly human. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was hungry. 
He was thirsty. He was tempted, yet without sin. He was tired. He felt pain. He was a baby. He had a human mom. He had siblings. He, he learned to walk. He grew in wisdom and understanding. Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom. He learned obedience. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was truly human. It was not a facade. It was not just an outward appearance. It was, it was not him acting. He was truly human. He was born in the likeness of men. And he didn't come as just any man. He wasn't born to a family of privilege or prestige or no, no, notability. I mean, it, it's one thing that, that God became man. He took on human humanity. You would think if that would happen, he would place himself in, in, in a family of power. But he didn't. He wasn't born to a family who possessed power in society or the world. He wasn't rich. Think about this. He didn't come during a time of comfort with modern medicine and modern technology. He didn't grow up in an important city like Rome, Athens, Egypt, or even Jerusalem. Instead, he grew up in Nazareth, which was nothing. And although he was the rightful king of the Jews, he didn't live a life of royalty. Instead, he came as a servant. Verse 7, look at verse 7. He, but he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He wasn't just a human, he took on the form of a servant. This is where we see the shocking contrast before between verse 6 and verse 7, the, the not this but this. What do I mean? Well, well, look at the word form in verse 7. It's the exact same Greek word used earlier in verse 6, morphe. In verse 6, Jesus was in the form, the morphe of God. He was Yahweh. There, there's nothing higher than that. There, there's no, no higher status or, or, or honor or glory than being in the form of God. But then look at verse 7. Jesus became human and took on the form, there's that word again, morphe, of a servant. Now in Greek, this word servant is the word doulos. It literally just means slave. And think about that. Jesus came from the heights of heaven, the highest position possible, the highest glory, the highest honor, the greatest power, the form of God to the, the lowest position imaginable. He was born a human in a stable, in a manger, but, but not just any human, a slave. There's no lower position. There's no lower status in, in society when it comes to humanity than a slave. In the Roman culture, this would have been just unbelievable. A doulos, a slave, nobody. In fact, the reason why the word doulos is translated servant or sometimes it's translated bond servant, it's a word that's used often and it's often just translated servant in English translations instead of slave is that even in the English language, 
the word slave is offensive. Because of our history, it's an offensive word, so most English Bibles just shy away from it when it can. But that's exactly what doulos means. Jesus was a slave, the lowest of the low. Now you might be asking, well, well, how was he a slave? I thought he was a carpenter's son. Well, just think about it. Just like a slave, Jesus didn't owe any, own anything. He didn't own anything. Right? He didn't have a home. Matthew 8, 20 says this, and Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No home, no bed. I mean, even at birth, he was born in a stable. Jesus didn't have any possessions. He had to borrow everything. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. At his own coronation as a king, he, he didn't even own a donkey. He had to borrow bread and fish just to multiply it to feed 5,000. He had to borrow a room to celebrate Passover at the Last Supper. He had to borrow water to change it into wine. He owned nothing. Just like a slave, he didn't have the freedom to do his own will. He obeyed the spirit who led him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan without food for 40 days. He obeyed his father's will in everything. John 5, 30, I, I can do nothing from my, my own. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I, I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38 says this, for I have come uh, from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Just like a slave, Jesus didn't come to be served. Instead, he served. And just like a slave, he served at his own expense. Luke 22, verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Matthew 20, verse 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, he even washed the disciples' feet, which was, was a job reserved only for slaves. The lowest of the low in society. No, no one would dare wash someone's feet. And no one of honor would do that job. But Jesus did. Listen, Jesus, in his humility he emptied himself he truly became human he became a slave again verse 7 jesus emptied himself by taking the form morphe of a servant being born in the likeness of men meaning just like he was in the form of god truly divine he became human in the form, morphe, of a servant, a slave. Truly God and truly human. Now, 
I want you to listen to what Sinclair Ferguson writes about the nature of Jesus. I just think this is beautiful. Let me just read it. The divine person of the Son of God was, has always been, or always had a divine nature. He has all the qualities of God. He is, as the Shorter Catechism says, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of providence. He's the Lord of history. And not only so, but as the divine Son, our Lord has always had a perfect union and communion with the Father and with the Spirit, always face to face with God, dwelling in unimaginable, great, mature love and joy with the Father and with the Spirit. It's knowing this that makes John's statement at the beginning of his gospel so utterly amazing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal Word took on human nature, conceived as a male child in the womb of a young virgin named Mary in a remote region of the Roman Empire that has been renamed Palestine. Just an amazing an amazing example of Jesus's humility in the incarnation from heaven to earth. And this brings me to my third point this morning. Jesus's humility in his death. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, truly human, he humbled himself. Now, I hope you're seeing the progression here from, from God in heaven to, to man on earth. Jesus humbled himself. Now, there's something I want to point out. And again, as I was meditating on this passage, I think this is important. Jesus wasn't humbled. He humbled himself. Throughout verses 6, 7, 8, Jesus is the one acting. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took on the form, morphe, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He wasn't humbled. Because you can't humble him. He's perfect. He's flawless. He's sinless. He's divine. He's perfectly holy. No one could humble him. Just think about that. As a man, I am often humbled. <laughs> Aren't you? I mean, sometimes I, I'm humbled not because of anything I have done. Sometimes I'm just humbled by, by other people's godly action, godly character, their grace, their respect, their, their humility, their godliness. It's just humbling. But often, I'm humbled by my own stupidity. I hate to use that word, but it's appropriate. I mean, I don't know how many times people come up to me and say something like this. Nathan, I don't want to puff you up, but that was a good sermon. You know what always goes through my head when I hear that? You don't have to worry. I will be humbled soon. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. I mean, if you're called to public speaking, you will be humbled. Especially if you struggle with speaking and reading. 
I mean, you guys have heard me try to pronounce things up here. I do not know why I say bolt every time I see blot. (laughs) God is always humbling me, which is a good thing. And I'm sure you've been humbled too. I mean, how about this? Every time I come to the Lord's table and reflect on my sinfulness, reflect on all my failures, and when I cry out to God for forgiveness and and, and think about Jesus' death on the cross, which is what paid the price of my sin, I'm humbled. And this is just common practice with Christianity, right? I mean, we Christians are flawed. Every one of us, every man, in fact, who, who has walked the face of this earth is flawed except one man, Jesus, who is truly human yet without sin. Truly human yet was never humbled by an outside force because he was flawless. He never did something foolish. He never did something sinful. He never had to ask for forgiveness. He was perfect in every way, yet he was humble. Because he humbled himself. Now the word humble in verse 8 has an idea of lowliness. Jesus made himself low. And really not just by divine standards. I mean, that would be enough. But he made himself low by human standards. Let me just read Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of, a, out of dry ground. He, this is Jesus, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Listen, if you saw Jesus during his lifetime and you didn't hear him speak, you you didn't see the crowds surrounding him, you didn't see one of his miracles, if you just saw him and you walked past him, guess what? You would walk past him not knowing that he was anything special. He appeared as a man, as a slave, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You would have esteemed him not because he was truly human in the form of a servant. But listen, it gets lower than that. Verse eight, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Earlier I said, a slave is as low as it gets in society. Well, I lied. Sorry. I hope you forgive me. That's not a correct statement. Within human society, there are people lower than slaves criminals. This is especially true in Roman society. The lowest of the low were were not slaves. The lowest of the low were criminals, especially criminals that hung on a cross. 
To die a criminal's death on a cross was, was the most shameful thing that could happen to a, a person. It was so shameful that it was just taboo to, to even talk about the cross and crucifixion in Roman society. Cultured Romans would never use the word. You can look at literature. You just don't see the word cross or crucifixion mentioned. In, in common speech, it was just too shameful to use the word cross. It was almost a curse word. Crucifixion was, was so shameful that, that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified at all. Roman citizens, no matter what they did, they, they weren't allowed to be crucified. Only enemies of Rome, the, the worst of the worst, non-Roman citizens who committed the worst crimes were crucified. They were stripped naked, nailed to a cross and lifted before everyone. They were subjected to the most painful, torturous, humiliating death imaginable. Death on the cross was, was so ugly, so offensive, so gruesome, so repugnant, that it was a stumbling block for many first century. Meaning, I want you to think about this. There are people in hell right now because they, they could not imagine or accept a Messiah, no less God, who hung on a cross. It was just too much for many to believe. No one would humble themselves that much. Yet that's exactly what Philippians 2, 5 through 8 teaches. It's the heart of Christianity. Jesus, who was in the form of God, equal to God, truly divine, truly God, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. But, but he didn't stop there. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humility of Christ. From heaven to earth, from earth to the cross. Jesus, the God of the universe, the great Yahweh, humbled himself. There's just so much we could say. But this is the three points of the sermon this morning. Jesus' humility in heaven. He was even humble in heaven. Jesus' humility on earth. He came as a man in incarnation. Jesus' humility in his death, even death on a cross. And let me end by saying this. Are you humble? How about this? Are you humbled? Because I don't know how you can read this passage and not be. Remember why Paul wrote Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He says this in verse 5. Have this mind or attitude or, or mindset. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is concerned with the unity of the church. And he gives us an example of humility. Jesus, God the Son, who became man and died.
died on the cross for our sins. How could you reflect on that truth and not be humbled? Let's pray. Dear Father, God, I am humbled just by preaching the sermon. Lord, reflecting on your Son, our, our merciful Redeemer, who, who willingly laid down the glory of heaven and, and all its happiness and became a, 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 an infant, a, a man, subject to, to all the weaknesses and evils of this fallen world. And after a life of poverty and hardship, as a servant, as a slave, he died at length one of the most cruel and shameful deaths that human nature could ever endure. And all of this, all of this to, to bring redemption and salvation to us, Lord, that you would be glorified. God, I pray as we reflect on these truths, especially as we get closer to Christmas and, and we think about this, this baby in a manger, as we reflect on the, the humility of, of Christ to come as a baby, to, to, to fully pull on uh, human nature, to, to be truly human, Lord, that we would examine our hearts and if there is any pride, Lord, I, I just pray through the Spirit, Lord, that the, the truth of Christ, Lord, would just abolish it. That we would be humbled. That we would humble ourselves. That we would turn our eyes off ourselves and look to your Son, to you, and what he did for us on the cross, Lord. God, I pray for, for just a spirit of humility. In your Son's name we pray.